Hello and welcome to Style Reimagine. I'm Eleanor Salter. I'm an international style coach and style editor of Rich Woman magazine. I'm going to be travelling around the world interviewing designers, stylists and influencers to find out how their designs, ideas and inspiration can impact your style and make you the best version of yourself. Today I'm a little nearer to home and I've travelled to London to speak to Angela Quaintrell from AQ Market. One of the wonderful things about my chosen career is that I meet some incredible and fascinating people who I'm now honoured to call friends and Angela is one of them. I love talking to her about her long career in fashion and the people she's met and more importantly mentored in their careers. One of these is Lee McQueen, better known to us as Alexander McQueen, whose life ended far too soon. Angela has studios in London and Paris where she mentors emerging designers and introduces them to the buyers and the public. She lectures at many of the top fashion schools in the UK, speaks German and French and is an absolute fount of knowledge in the fashion world. I'm sure you'll find her as fascinating as I do, so let's dive in. Angela, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us your time. Pleasure. We've met a couple of times and um, had lots of lovely conversations and I'm always totally inspired by what you say, by your background. Perhaps you could just give um, our listeners just um, a, a brief account of how you got here, what you do yeah. and um, your history. I, I always say I was born on the shop floor. I've got a very weird background, but both my parents were in the fashion business and that at the age of 11, I was selling in my father's what he called a molly sale, which was a sample sale. I don't quite know why he called it molly, but he did. And that started, I think, my, my love of selling. I think that's why Peter, my husband, lets me carry on working because I think <laughs> I'd be selling to him if I didn't. <laughs> so it's, re it's, it's really in my blood. I started at Debenham Freebody, which is unfortunately no longer the building still there, but it is no, it's no longer in a, a retail store. And my first task was to look, you were only allowed to talk to the salespeople. You weren't allowed to talk to any live customers. So I was set with Miss Mannering and I spent most of my time in the knitwear department with her because the lenses were always falling out of her glasses and all of the knitwear was put into cellophane bags. And I spent the time searching through the bags to find where her lenses had gone to. <laughs> Funny story, actually it happened last week. I've got, I think you've, you've, you have seen the collection, Eleanor, the Anthony Shepherd. We are, one of my designers is an investor and he had fallen in love with Anthony's suits. And I don't think he'd ever, he'd never had like a Savile Row suit. And Anthony's trained in Savile Row. So his, the woman he's investing in decided that she'd buy him the jacket for his 50th birthday as a surprise. So I had to go get it from the showroom, get a box and fold it up. And she said to me, Day, I said to me, oh, I'm so pleased you fold it because I have no idea how to fold clothes. <laughs> and doing a pop-up shop in July, which is a sustainable one. I don't think her collection was there. It was just the leather pieces there when you were, but you'll see them this week. It's beautiful. And she's gonna, I she thinks she's gonna be a star actually. So she said, Oh, I, I don't I've never folded things, I don't know how to fold. And then somebody else that I spoke to they said, Well, we, we were never taught how to fold. I'm like, how can you be? in fashion and not know how to fold. Right. I was a month, I think, being taught. And actually I was talking to my, she's my very good friend now. And she was my boss at Liberty. And she said, you were always the best packer. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right. So, so I stayed there. It was a very good training. And the most fun part was there was a Godiva chocolate corner at the front door. And we were, we were called the contingency staff. I'm not quite sure why. And at lunchtime, we had to take charge of the Godiva 
store. So you can imagine we never stopped stuffing our faces with <laughs> chocolates. My idea of heaven. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, I couldn't do it now, but I did it then. Uh, from there, I went to, I've had amazing, I've had an amazing opportunities and worked for amazing people. So the, my next job was at Aquascutum. And I had a boss there called Avis Garnier. And to kind of paint a picture of her, she had long hair, which she always wore up in, in, in the week. But on a Saturday, she'd wear it down in a ponytail. So she was that kind of a woman, but she was fantastic. And it, we had this, the shop front on the women's floor. And one of the, the buyers used to sit at the front. And then all of our sales staff used to be behind waiting for our, our turn. We were inspected before um, the store opened. Our, our hands were looked at, our nails were looked at, our shoes were looked at, was our hair right? And then we queued up and Avis Garnier always used to say, if you want something expensive, if you want to buy Cunico, go to Angela. If you want something inexpensive, don't bother. She's not good at that. Yeah. So, And then the other thing it taught me, and again, this happened the other, it was really weird, happened the other day is, I will never, ever, ever stand with my arms folded because she used to, if you did, she used to come along and really hit you hard under your elbows so that your arms flew out. Wow. And she said, because it just, it, you know, it means that you are not confident. You're, you're covering yourself up. And one of my designers last week actually was had being photographed. And they said, oh, why don't you do it? You fold your arms. And I had to say, I couldn't, I couldn't keep quiet. So they they so she wasn't there with her arms folded so she told me that and she was yeah she was really really good to me I mean she was strict she's very very strict but she was good from there I went to Harvey Nichols and Harvey Nichols was when it was still kind of a an old grandma shop and there a fantastic man called Bill Loudon took it over and I was sales manager on the women's floor for I think you know probably four or five years I was at Aquascutum nine years and I was at Debenhams I think about so when I went to Harvey Nichols I was sales manager and then Bill Loudon called me in one day and said I'm going to make you a buyer and I'm like oh great this is my first kind of you know buyership and he said children's wear and I'm like children's wear yeah. I know nothing about children's wear I don't have children and I know nothing about it so that's why I'm taking you so what he did was make me to speak to all the designers we carried in women's wear to do scaled down versions so we had like the Quitzes, we had Cacherelle, we had Juliette Dunn, mm -hmm. we had Muir. And it worked fantastically. I mean, on a Saturday, I'd be on the shop floor and the, the men, you know, the divorced men with their children in tow would just come in you know, and just spend money. It was, I could easily on a Saturday in those days, which is a long time ago, I could take like 20, 30 grand in that children's wear. Wow. So yeah, that, that taught me that. And he was, he was again, very strict. I'll never forget, I had a stock room at the back of the, the store and somebody had put a, a handwritten sign in that stock room. It's not the customers would ever have gone near it. He came up to me with a sign, cardboard sign, handwritten, tore it up in front of me and said, we don't do that, do we? And that, you know, that was, he set the, the, the pace there on the stage. And that was uh, really taught me, and, and all of my uh, designers will say, let Angela do the merchandising because she's fantastic. And my boss used to always say, she'll do it three times and then she's happy. So yeah. it, taught, it taught me that, it taught me, you have to have the same hangers. It taught me your hangers have to be certain, you know, a thumb apart it was. We just have to measure it with our thumb that they would apart that much. But it, you know, it taught us such a lot. From there, he went to Fortnum Masons and took me to Fortnum Masons, which I hated. I have to say, I think it's the only job that I hated. I mean, there were knives like ready to, to stab you. They just oh, didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't trust anybody, the other buyers, they didn't want you in there. And um, I didn't like it there a bit. 
but from there there was someone in there, Graham Fraser, who you may have remembered, he was Workers for Freedom. Hmm. He was merchandise manager then. He went to Liberties and he decided that he would take me to Liberties. So when I arrived, my, my, in big writing I put here, like when I arrived at Liberty, because I felt that is what happened. It completely changed my, my way of thinking, my way of being in a way. So we started off by, it was very, it was very classic Liberty at those days. Like the most modern thing we would have had is um, Stephen Marks. That was before like Nicole Fari. Nicole Fari started just about when, when I did. So we decided we were going to change that shop floor. And luckily I had people um, like Graham and then Tom Logan who supported me. So when I was trying to get a brand, they, they would help me get that. And that's when I started my love of like emerging designers. Right. So we brought in, firstly, we brought in the British. So they were mostly unknowns or had just started. So I brought in John Galliano. And my story about John is that I was in Paris, I suppose about two years ago, three years ago, and suddenly he's shouting, Angela, 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 me, who's sitting at the cafe with his little dog, Gypsy. And um, we started chatting and I said, do you remember you came into the store one Saturday and you put a pair of um, blue Junior Watanabe trousers on and ran out the store? And he said, oh yeah, yeah, I do remember that. <laughs> so that that's, my, that's my Galliano story. Then we brought in Antonio Berardi, Betty Jackson body map, Piss Beyond. And my claim to fame seems to be, especially nowadays, it's really weird now, much more than when he died, is Lee McQueen. Because okay. I was the first to buy Lee McQueen um, in the UK. Oh. He, he used to wander around in, the, in Liberty, and of course it's still there, the atrium. He used to wander around there with his mother and say, I'm going to be in here one day. And true enough, he was. And he called me his second mother. And he, he, he and I might get emotional, he committed suicide on my birthday. And um, we were very, very close. We started with terrible rows because he, we didn't pay him like straight the minute he delivered. But we, we ended up good friends. And I have to say, this is what I always say to the designers, that I think all of those people think that Lee's success was his huge big pieces in the show, which of course they were a success and they bought the press, but, and they were about three or 4,000 then. But what really took the money um, is that his tailoring, if you, stop it Lily, if you put a jacket, a pair of trousers, a skirt on a woman, they buy it because it fitted like a glove. He was yeah. amazing. So whereas I'd buy probably two of those expensive dresses, I'd buy like 12 of each of those jackets and, and all of the other pieces. And the, when I've been doing quite a lot of lecturing during the lockdown, I mean, I've done the Condé Nast lecture, I've done Trampery, I've done Leeds University, I've done the Regents University, Leeds somewhere else, I can't think where. Yeah, and they've all been really interested in that fact. And it, it really is, it, it is a fact. And I know that in menswear, in Harvey Nichols, they've never had a designer that the suits have sold so well as um, Lee's did. So yeah. that, that was him. And, I, you know, he's, he's, he has a place in my heart and he, he always will. And I hope I have a place in his heart. Yeah. Yeah. After that, we've got the Japanese in, which is probably, I think the Japanese and, and the Belgians are seriously my favourite. We bought the Japanese, so we bought Issei Miyake in. And every time I saw Issei, I used to go bright red. And the funny story with that, and I don't know if any of you've heard of Richard Stewart Liberty, who was the son of the Liberty owner. He was in the business for quite a long time. So we wanted Permanente, which was the very expensive part of Issei as well as, as the other part. So we had to go to Tokyo 
So he came with me. We had this huge round table with all these Japanese men, and you know how friendly they can be. <laughs> Not. And we started talking about, you know, like permanent. So Richard, so he's a very big guy, suddenly got a red spotted handkerchief out of his pocket and tied it on his head and said, "Over to you, Angela." <laughs> so I had to do all the negotiations. Thank goodness we got it. But that that was an experience, a real yeah. experience. But it sold very well. Isomiyaki was we sold a lot of Isomiyaki. But we also bought in Yoji Yamamoto, which sold well to a certain customer. We bought in Juno Watanabe, which was our press pieces. I was always getting told off for buying it, but it brought us a lot, a lot of press. And I, the buyers were small, but it's just to give us that edge. Yeah. And that's what I was trying to do. I, I do the, I do the plans for my designers now, and that we work out what the pieces that are really going to take your money are, what your cash cow is going to be, as well as what the press are going to love, and, and it's going to give you your your name. Yeah, so that was that was that. Then my next find was who is one of my favourites as well and still is was Dries van Noten. So we bought in the Belgians. I saw him in London. He was at when they did the, the um, exhibitions at Olympia. And there was the Belgian six there. So I bought him. I bought Dumoulmister and um, Margiela that I loved and Wickenburg. But I had to go to Dries's house in in Amsterdam to buy the collection. And he took a lot a lot. Of, he, he took the most money on that fashion floor. And I understand he still does, which is great. He's never changed. He's, I've gone through many designers that start off as really lovely and quite you know, calm and quiet and end up as a real number. One of them, I'm not going to mention the name, but I mean, they started off, I started them off really when I was at CFE. Great designers, two great guys. And they just got so big for their boots and that they finished now because they wouldn't listen and you know, things like they didn't watch what they were doing in their factory, that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't properly done. And so, yeah, it, it, it's, but he's never, I have to say he's never, ever ever changed so then I went started going into the colleges and universities and doing like critiques at, firstly at Royal College of Art then at uh, St Martin's so in in different places and bringing some so we had somebody like Francine Seward who I'm still in touch with now she we did a competition for Liberty Print and she won it so we sold it in the store and it sold really well so we did things like that but then I joined Colin McDowell on Fashion Fringe which was this competition and um, it was a yearly competition it was fantastic it's a shame that it finished it went for 10 years and his dream was that a window cleaner was going to win it but of course it never it never happened it was always like somebody who was studying fashion but it really was just like this time Angela come on look this time <laughs> we can only choose you know what we can choose he's I mean I know he's Marmite, but I absolutely adore him. And I, he's in his 80s now, and I, I still keep tabs on him. And um, he used to, we used to, once they had the finalists for Fashion Fringe, they used to go into the Mayor Street part of London College of Fashion. And I was in there once a week, and he'd come in once a month. And I had to go around after he'd been like mopping the tears of the designer. So he didn't, he told me it was awful. And so, but I'm sure he taught them an awful lot. And Erdem was one of the first winners of that competition. And we okay. had Theodore Goland. And it was a great thing, but it didn't. Richard Nickel was one as well. So um, is, is this how you find your designers now? I know you've said to me before that um, you only work with people you like, but do you, do you find yeah. your designers from the, the colleges or how do yeah. they come to you? The, I mean, the bet, now I'm finding it hard or and now I'm starting lecturing again because when I was I was at CFE as the a consultant for 18 years I mean it's finished now and I so it finished for consultants two years ago so I used to do lectures twice or three times a year to people it could be startups it could be somebody that was you know already in the business and was trying to relaunch and I used to get a lot of people coming from that right uh, because they were they were 
out of the university, they weren't still in there, it was, you know, they were ready to come to somebody like me as a consultant. And what I'm doing now, they're still at, you know, they're still at the university. But I've had, I'm amazed that I've just, this season, I've already picked up two new designers. And there's one interesting one, which I really want him to come on board. And I hope he's going to, it's called Bare Essentials. Right. And he has done the watches that are wooden, the, the actually body of the watch is wooden, and then it has the strap that's in the fabric. And he's also started, which I think has been very successful, doing it with glasses and sunglasses, so doing the wooden sustainable frames. And that's, yeah, so, but I, I know that that's one of the questions was that how I select them. And I select by quite... I'm quite in favour of like the first the first time you see them and meet them so I select them really by personality they have right. to have passion if I have somebody sitting there who doesn't really know what they want or what they're doing then I don't take them because it's a tough business it's getting tougher so I always call them like they have to be a bulldog really I, I call them that remember when I first had Shelley uh, Fox and she came to me from she was still at St Martin's actually I think when she came to me and we did a press thing and she stood there the whole day she never moved and I said Shelley why don't you go have something to eat why don't you go have a coffee no no no, no I'm not leaving here till you leave <laughs> so you know you need that you do need that bulldog spirit because yeah. it gets it gets hard and there's times when you know I've had great times and there's been some very tough times when you've had designers in tears do you know what I mean it's so yeah. It's, it is that they do have to have that order. The product has to be good and they have to really know what they want and what their DNA is going to be. I mean, I, I often, the designers I take are on different levels. Some are quite at the beginning. So we work out with the DNA who their customer is and then where they want to sell and then their kind of price points. So we go through different stages and some have already got that and some haven't, but it is really important that they stick to that. And I always say to them, you need to hold up your pieces of your collection to your friends or to family or whatever and say, do you know that this is mine? And I call it having their signature, not a signature that's signed, but a signature that shows it's their product. That's interesting. Especially for Americans, because the Americans, they start off, you know, looking the first collection, they probably will still sit on the fence then. And then the next time, if they see it again and they can see that, that thread going through, then, you know, it's it's then they'll probably take it, but it does need to have that longevity. That's really interesting. And uh, you have your studio in London and you also yes. have a studio in Paris. So yes. do, do you have the same designers in each studio or do you have a different criteria for, for each um, country? No, I, do, I have mostly the same, mostly all of the London ones come. There are some that just do Paris. They're more of like this time... I've got actually, she's, I think she's going to be really good. I think she might even come into London as well. She's Austrian and she does the most beautiful prints and in kimonos and her name's uh, uh, Mia. So I think I'm going to have her, but she will probably just be Paris. So it's usually, I have more designers in Paris. And when I worked for the CFE, I worked with in um, Dubai and I worked in Indonesia for them with, with the designers. I worked in Dubai for Her Royal Highness doing this. She did this as Yami, which was a project to help young designers. So they came to Paris with me twice and still I still have one Dubai one sometimes. And then the Indonesian, about six of them started, they came, but in the end it was too much to have in my show in the six because they're like, they're lovely, but they're, they're like children. They all have to be together. So they all yeah. have to go to lunch together and then they all have to do this. And then when buyers were coming in, I'd say, you know, you mustn't look at the buyers. And they'd say, no, 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 there's one in particular. And all of a sudden I had selfridges in and I could just see his little face peering above the rail looking 
Selfridges. So I just, you know, I, I, I couldn't. So it's about normally in this showroom, I think I've got 10 bearers. And then in Paris, I normally have about 14, 15, depending. We've got a new space this time, which I'm excited about because I had the same space for, I'd say, seven years. And now, because we didn't do it for two seasons, well, nobody did it for two seasons, it, um, it's, it's now been permanently rented. But I've, I've got a space that, it's a street that I, first time I went on my own, I got Rue Charlot, which is one of the best streets in Paris for showrooms. Right. And it looks great. So we're, we're taking that. I mean, we're all a bit, I'm nervous because I'm the one else to pay. I think it's, everyone seems to be saying it's going to be okay. And we really miss Paris because yes. we get, you know, we get, UAE buyers in Paris, we get Japanese, we get some French, some European, um, but we nearly always get a few <clears throat> really good ones and we get some press through the doors. UKFT, I don't know if you know the, do you know the people at UKFT, Eleanor? You should know. Um, you don't, yeah, no, out. I don't actually know, but. Oh, you should, yeah. you should. We're going to do some kind of little party in the showroom, so, and I hope you'll come and he'll definitely be yeah, there. Lovely. So, and Paris, you, you should try and come to Paris too. I think you said maybe you should try. You should. Yeah, so I'm trying to persuade Marina to come with me. <laughs> yeah, he'll definitely be at that. So, and it's, it, I think he'd be really helpful for you. He's the most lovely man. I mean, he's a, a lot, not a lot younger, but he's younger than me. But he, I, he's like my father. If I have any problems, he's just like, I'll sort it for you. Don't worry, I'll sort it. And That's it's funny. like a few years ago, Thomas Tate, who was uh, one of my designers, and Corsacoma, it's a very famous, uh, I'm sure you know it, Corsacoma. Yeah, yeah. Didn't didn't pay him, and it was about 10 grand, and then sent a, a, a paper from a bank saying it had been paid. And of course it wasn't. So I phoned Paul and I said, can you help me? And he said, yeah, yeah, don't worry. So he sorted out and he got paid. And I never knew until about two years ago, and this is about eight years ago, and that he said he had he used to hire this guy who had a, a black carriage with black horses and they wore black and they pull up at these shops and demand the money and they got it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so is your, is your studio um, in Paris, is it open all the time or do you just open no, it for the fashion week? I've just opened it for fashion week. We're right. open for seven days. Yeah, no, it's not yeah. It's not permanent. But I hope that it's it's good if you can keep the same space because people know where you are. Yes. But we're very near where we were. So I, I'm not worried about it. And we'll just be able to, you know, let buyers know. I hope the Americans will travel. I think they will. I've kind of been in touch because I'm very friendly with them. Laurie Kaplan, who's one of the buyers at Neiman Marcus, and she seems to think they're going to travel. So oh, that'd be fantastic. That. So, so other, do you think the Couture yeah, Week's yeah. going to go ahead? Couture, well, Chanel's announced, hasn't she? Have you not seen that? I no, because I, no. I, I get I get British Fashion Council um, letters. Right. So yeah, Chanel has announced oh, in, brilliant. in June with a live audience. Fantastic. So they're saying that before I started relooking with you know my agent for a space. She said lots of people are looking and they're saying June is going ahead. And actually Paul Auger at UKFD, he said June is going ahead. Okay. So what we are hoping, did I tell you about the yacht idea? Yes, yes. Yeah, so hopefully that's going to happen. But I haven't spoken to Carol again, but I think it, it will. So, but that will be for, because the couture buyers obviously are different to the, the mainline buyers. You do obviously get some of them that are the good independents that, that do both weeks. But I think maybe they'll just, well, they won't stay on it be too long. So September, Paris is thought to be September 27th to October 7th. And that's for women's wear and men's wear? 
I'm not sure. The last time they said if it was going to happen, it was going to be women's wear and men's wear. But now that they're saying June, because June would normally be men's wear and pre and couture. Right. And I haven't heard. I haven't heard. I must. I must ask. I hope that the men's wear is in September. Yeah. I think that will really help. Yeah. Uh, because I think it will make it easier for the you know the buyers and quite a lot of those independent stock you know men's and women's. And there's also there's this gender fluid thing now, which I've got a couple of designers, Anthony being one of them. That, that do do that and that was really growing very strongly I had from the CFB well there's art school and lover boy all of those are those um, gender fluid and yeah. they've done well they've done well so I, I hope it is I think it will help I speak French and German as well which helps me right. and every every buyer that in London I try and do it as well and usually I manage but in Paris every buyer that comes through that door I take them round to every you know every person so you know they see everybody but I think it's important and the, yeah. the the, you know the designers meet the buyers and and understand some of them get very very nervous but like Katie was nervous with you wasn't she yes she was, was, yeah. it was it did her good it did her good yeah but I had um a funny with the Indonesian I had I had this two guys called they were called Toton and Harrier and it was their first time in Paris with me and Harrier's mother is the richest woman in Indonesia and so he's very full of himself, very nice guy, but, you know, very confident. So all of a sudden, April Glassborough, who was then the buying director at Harvard Nichols, walked in. And she's an old friend of mine. We were at Liberty together. So by taking her around and we got to, to where Harry was standing. And I said, Harry, this is um, April. He explained the collection. And he went bright red and he just started to shake. He couldn't talk. <laughs> he couldn't talk. So I said, OK, well, I'll start it off, but you've got to carry it on. And he did. And it's the only way to make them. You know, it's just that's what I do. I say, OK, if you're really nervous, just stay with me. And then I'll I'll go and you carry on and you'll be fine. Yeah. And it always seems to work. I had one guy, girl Fanny, who's still I still really fond of her. She's shy and she was terrified. She's like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And now she absolutely, you know, she loves it. And in fact, after the first time, she sent me a text and a photograph, and she'd seen Susie Menkis walking at the uh, the, the station for the you know for the Eurostar. And she'd actually gone up to her and talked to her. So it just shows you, you know, it doesn't yeah. take them that long to get the confidence. And that's what they yeah, need. And they have some passion for their, their clothes yeah. anyway, don't yeah. they? That, that yeah. it, if you can just get them talking about it, yeah. it comes yeah. out. Once they start, I mean, once they start, they, I mean, you met, yeah, of course you've met Yan Hui. I mean, once he starts, you can't stop him. <laughs> <laughs> I love him to bits. He's yeah. so, so such a fantastic passion for it. About everything yeah. he does and it just yeah. comes out, you know, everything yeah. he does. Wonderful. Yeah, it's it kind of seeps out of the screen, doesn't it? It's yes, like, it does. Yeah, it's yeah. really he's. I love him. I love him so, and he's so nice as well. He's he's very gentle and very kind. He's he'll always help someone. Actually, nearly all of them really, really look. You know, they do look after each other. I mean, we've got one. I think I told you, Basma, whose father is really very, very sick, and she hasn't been in the show for a bit. But I call her nearly every week, and we do a Zoom, and if we we keep her in touch with what's going on. So we are we are like a family. That's, yeah. that's what back to think we are and that we help each other and if I, I had a Russian design a few times ago and she just didn't fit in and I just I'm really sorry but you, you really don't fit so you know I think we should finish and we did and it was fine and she was fine with it some people do and some people don't yeah that's a, and so just so um just finishing off the final mm. question so what status quo in the fashion world would you like to challenge oh sustainable yeah <laughs> sustainable I know it's this is the bit that took me a long time to work out and, really, and I'm reading it to my husband and he's like okay you've read that bit to me you've read that bit to me so sustainable is the buzzword and I know that we have to follow this critical and environmental time to save the future of the planet 
But the thing that annoys me hugely is every time I do a lecture, and this has been going on for probably four years, five years, and even now with new designers, they say, oh, I'm sustainable. And I'm like, you're totally sustainable. Yes, totally. I said, you've got a certificate. I've got a certificate for this or for that. And what buttons do you use? And how do you get your product from wherever it is to come here? And I say, you're not totally sustainable and you can get yourself in a lot of trouble, but they still waffle about it and try to make out they are when they're not. The only one I, I've had one that was bite was the Swedish guy and he worked for four years on it. And now I've got Aqua and Rock, who's actually up She's shortlisted for the Draper's Sustainable Award, and I think she'll win it actually. And you'll you'll see you won't see her because she lives in St Andrews, but she she is very very good, and the clothes are, are good as well. So that that's one thing. And I know that customers want to understand the journey of what they are buying, and the story that really made it clear to me because like. I mentored Ada Zanderton, which was one of the first sustainables I ever heard of. Oh, and I worked with um, Ursula as well mm. years ago. And, and I was like, was, that's when I was buying. And I was like, you know, sustainable doesn't matter to me. I, if I want the product and I like the product, I'll buy it. And so will the end customer. And I was just like, sustainable's not that hard. And it's only quite recently I've really kind of started to appreciate it. And no, I don't think it actually makes the sale, but I think it tells the story. Yeah. And certainly when I do, if I've got sustainable, I put in my subject heading on my email. It's all about sustainability. And people did answer it. And Matches did answer it. And so did um, Fennec. And they bought the brand. So, but what the, the Matches buyer said to me is we are very aware that whether a buyer, man or woman, is standing in our store trying on something or have gone home and are looking in the mirror and thinking, oh, do I like this? They want to know where it's come from. Yeah. But my other concern is I'm concerned that some designers are so concentrating on the sustainability that they're losing their creativity, their uniqueness, not concentrating enough on the quality just to give the end customer the joy and experience of making selection and their purchase. The textile designers, I think, have really stepped up because the criticism a lot was that their fabrics were so boring. Now they're not. I mean, I, I, Anthony Shepard, he brought some samples for Pete's going to make Pete's a jacket. And they're from English manufacturers. Beautiful from Skibal and, and another English one. I forget the name. But the fabrics are absolutely beautiful and they are sustainable. But I just think I'm worrying that the designers, it, they're concentrating too much on the sustainable, not enough yeah. on the manufacturer, not enough on the product to give it that specialness. And that's that's the the thing that's that's really got to be got over, isn't it? Because mm. you know you, you mm. tend to think about sustainable as being, I don't know, it, to, to have a really stupid thing. Say it's hemp and it's all um, mm. dowdy and and mm. you know a bit mm. sort of arty farty. But yes. yeah. as you say, if you've got a beautiful product yeah. that is going to last and last and last and last for yeah. years and years and years, yeah. then you know that is almost as sustainable as something that that yeah. you know as, as I say it has got the circular part of it yes yeah do you agree with what I've said because I really it's yeah. quite I know I do it's quite out there but I thought I've got to say it because yeah. I, I really do feel it no I, I do agree and I think with, with a lot of things like politics and all sorts it has to go so far the other way before it sort of goes mm. back into the middle again doesn't it and, yeah. and you get that that balance between the yes. two yeah because um, I think now it has gone it's really like it's so strong isn't it and everybody's yeah. talking about it but yeah. actually you know Ivana Ivana said I'm over that sustainable word she makes me laugh <laughs> I mean she'll, she'll do what she wants to do and she's she's I love her to bits she's such a character but yeah she's like oh, when I said are you sustainable because I'm trying to 
you know, you spoke to Angela, didn't you? But yes. Yeah. And I'm trying, to, we might get a pop-up shop on sustainability at Vista. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I said That's to her, do you want yeah. to, to be in? And she was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm over sustainable. So, okay. <laughs> so, but as okay, I say, well. it's, it's so much is, is about the quality of a product, isn't it? There's yeah, no point in having something sustainable if it's yeah. going to fall to pieces within a couple yeah. of, of weeks or you, you're not going to wear yes. it because it just goes out of, it's not classical enough to keep going. Yeah. There's definitely a balance to be made yeah. thank you so much for talking okay. to us as ever i could just sit and listen to you for, for hours and hours and hours i think it's just so fascinating so thank you so much for your time thank you thank you, and, thank you. you are listening to your style imagined by rich woman magazine with eleanor salter and our guest angela quintrell from aq market who has shared with us the insights into her long career and her passion for mentoring emerging designers Please remember to share and to come back for more amazing stylish encounters from the world of couture, style, fashion and beauty. And join me on my journey around the world visiting designers, manufacturers and trendsetters to help you reimagine your style.